<clears throat> following the journey of the Israelites in the book of Exodus, and as we are informed in the New Testament that these things are recorded so that we should learn from them. And so this morning we're going to <clears throat> take a, a really powerful truth out of this story this morning. <clears throat> it's a very familiar story to probably a lot of us. Maybe it's new to you this morning, but a lot of us will recognize the story. And I'm going to begin by reading it. And we're going to read all of chapter 11, book of Exodus, and then some of chapter 12, because it all kind of flows together. So I invite you, you can follow along up on the wall, you can follow along in your own Bible. Uh, if you're following in your own Bible, chapter 11, we'll be reading verse for verse. Chapter 12, I'm going to kind of just read a portions of that, so you might want to follow on the wall when we get to chapter 12. <clears throat> Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, <clears throat> Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and both sides of the doorframe. And no one of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and the sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Then tell them, it is the sac Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians at <clears throat> midnight. The Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat <coughs> on the throne, excuse me, <coughs> to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. And Pharaoh and all his officials, all the Egyptians, got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, but there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go and worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks, your herds, as you've said, and go. And also, bless me. Now, many of us have heard that story. We understand the metaphor of that story to at least a certain extent. But, you know, if, if you were, if this is the first time you heard that, or, or you were in Egypt and, and you saw the Israelites, these people out 
cutting the throats of thousands of lambs and pouring their blood in a basin and then taking a, a branch and putting blood on the door frames of their houses, wouldn't that seem a little bit strange to you? I, I think it must have seemed a bit strange. In fact, the whole concept of animal sacrifice and, and blood and, and all of that can seem a little bit odd, I would think. It certainly, it certainly did in the first century. I was <clears throat> came across a, a reading. This is called the Octavius of Minicius Felix. Interesting name. It's a manuscript from the second century, which is like 170 or so A.D., and it's, the manuscript is a, it's basically kind of a back and forth debate between a Christian and a non-Christian. So, you know, in our day, we, we talk about the fact that Christians are kind of put in a negative light in the culture. <clears throat> well, you want to know the charge of Christians in the first century? Just one of them. One of the charges was, was that they were cannibals. So, here's a charge by Silesius, who's a pagan. He says, you Christians are the worst breed ever to affect the world. You deserve every punishment you get. Nobody likes you. It would be better if you and your Jesus had never been born. We hear that you are all cannibals, that you eat the flesh of your children in your sacred meetings. Octavius, who's a Christian, responds back, that story is probably based on reports that we share a meal together of the body and blood of Christ. That we do. But it is not human flesh we eat, it is bread and wine we consecrate to commemorate our Lord's death. It amazes me you give credibility to these rumors of cannibalism. You know what we're like. Keep in mind that if you have a child and it is a girl but you want a boy, or if it is a child that is deformed, or if you simply don't want it, what is done? You leave it outside, exposed to die. Cecilius writes, Well, you know that it is far more merciful to let the baby die than to bring it up in a home where it's not wanted. Heard that one before? In Octavius, the Christian responds, We do not expose our children. And you are well aware of how many of the little ones that have been left out to die have been rescued by Christians in this community and given a home. So it's just the opposite of what you accuse us of, Cecilius. We don't consume human life. We protect and defend it. Now, the point I make is this, is that there was a lot of misunderstanding from the first century on. I think there's still a lot of misunderstanding today I think a lot of people just don't get it, what's going on with this talk of the blood and talking about the preciousness of the blood and power in the blood and all of the things we talk about when we talk about the blood and the book of Leviticus and all the, all the animal sacrifices and thousands of gallons of blood that are flowing through the temple. And so we see here that this is not always very easy to comprehend. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is I'd like to take this phrase, the Lamb of God. 
And I'd like, to, I'd like us to see that this is a thread that we can trace from the very beginning of the Bible all the way through to the end. The Lamb of God. So here's the backstory. Moses has gone to Pharaoh in chapter 5. Pharaoh says no, and so the plagues start in chapter 7. You see that the water turns to blood in chapter 7. Then in chapter 8, there are frogs and gnats and flies everywhere. Then in chapter 9, the livestock dies and people get boils all over their bodies and the hail comes and destroys much of what's there, the crops. That isn't bad enough. Then in chapter 10, the locusts come and eat up everything that's green and then darkness falls over the land. And so now in chapter 11, the final plague is threatened. Remember Moses at the beginning of this whole ordeal, shy guy who was afraid to go to Pharaoh? I just, it's just kind of a side point, but I find it kind of interesting. You'll, you'll see in, in chapter 11 here, it says, All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me, saying, Go! You and all the people who follow you. He's predicting now that Pharaoh's going to come and say, hey, get out of here, which is exactly what happened. It says, and after that, I will leave. And then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. So here's Moses. He's, he's ticked off. He's just angry. Angry because Pharaoh has refused once more. Angry because this is going to devastate the land. A lot of human life is going to be lost because of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. Well, we see that this plague, then this final plague is described. And there's going to be destruction. Predominantly against the Egyptians. <clears throat> as the Israelites were instructed to put blood on the door. So what if you were an Egyptian and you killed a lamb and put blood on the door? Would that be good? Well, it's interesting. In, we see there in Exodus 12, 38, look, look what it says. Many other people went up with them. It wasn't just Israelites. And I can't tell you this for absolute sure, but it certainly appears from, all, appears from all appearances that whoever had the faith to put the lamb in the door, Egyptian or Israelite, that they were spared. And as we know, the mercy of God and the gospel has never just been for the Jewish people. In fact, the Jewish people were reached so that they might be a light to all the nations. And we see along the way, like Rahab, a woman who had faith and God honored that. There were people in Egypt who had faith, who were not Israelites, whom God honored. And so, as it says, many other people went up with them when they left, as well as large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. And so we see this that night, it seems like basically what mattered was, is there blood of the lamb on your doorpost? 
So here we have this nation killing thousands of sheep, putting, putting the blood on the doors. And what I'd like to do this morning is help us see just what a predominant theme this is uh, throughout, throughout the scriptures. So let's go back. Let's go right back to the very beginning of the Bible. We're just going to walk through this here. And we're going to do this rather quickly, but I want you to get the sense so it's Genesis 3, and Adam and Eve have sinned. And notice what they do. In verse 7 it says, And their eyes were opened. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So they made clothes, loincloths, out of fig leaves. Okay? Which... You know, I mean, I'm sure that served the purpose. But it's interesting that God comes along just a few verses later. In verse 21, and this is what he does. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Evidently, God felt that taking leaves off a tree was not significant. Is that because God was didn't like the style, fig leaf style, was that? I don't think so. I think it's because the only appropriate covering for the sin of Adam and Eve was that which would result in the death of another living being. And every time they looked at that garment, they realized that their sin was being covered because of the death of a living creature. We don't know what, that, what those skins were. They could have been the skin of a lamb. So we move on then to Cain and Abel, just another chapter later. And we see there in verses 3 to 5, it's interesting, it says in the it says, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering from the fruit of the ground. Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So again, you know, one, of the, one brought something from the fruit of the land. The other brought that which required the lifeblood, the 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 giving of a life and the shedding of blood, and it was the life that was shed with the blood that was acceptable as a sacrifice to God. Well, then we bump just a few chapters ahead into chapter 22 of Genesis, and we run into this story of Isaac and Abraham. So I have a question for you. If, if you had been Abraham... If you're a parent, and you woke up one day, and this is what you heard. You heard God speaking to you, saying, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. What would you think? Or what would you do? Well, I know what I would think. I would think I must have... I must have eaten something for supper that didn't sit very well with me. I think I was hallucinating. You know what I might think? I would might think I'm hearing from a demon. 
Because I'm not going to go sacrifice my child on some mountain. <clears throat> so for us living in Western culture, this makes absolutely no sense. And what also doesn't make sense is that Abraham seems to just go along with this. We don't, you know, Moses had, you know, an argument with God. And we read other people having arguments with God, but we don't see any argument with God here. There's no protest on the part of Abraham. He, he just heads out to go along with what's happening here. Now, it's interesting that as we look at the story, in noticing there's an interesting verse in 8. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. So Abraham goes out. He says, okay, God's calling me to offer my firstborn son to him. And, but I think he's going to bring in a lamb along the way. And, and notice that he would bring in a lamb to provide as the offering for his son. However, we see in verse 10, that this is the amazing thing about Abraham. It says, then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. So evidently, they got there, and there was no lamb, and Abraham's going, okay. I guess there is no sacrifice alternative. I have to sacrifice my son. So as... There's a, there's a real clue to this if we go back now to Exodus and chapter 13. Notice chapter 13, verse 2. Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast, is mine. So you, your firstborn belongs to me. Your firstborn is a payment to me. Firstborn is, you have a debt to me. <clears throat> and so your firstborn is to be given as unto me. And in those days, it was understood that the firstborn represented the family. You know, in our day, it's, we're so, in, in this culture, in the West, we're so individualistic. But not so in this culture. The firstborn represented the whole family. And the sins of a whole family were visited in that firstborn. And so that was the debt that that family owed to God. When God told Abraham to get up and go sacrifice your son, you know what, Abraham, you know what? You have every right to do that because the firstborn belongs to you. But there is another thing that plays into this. As you, you look at the account, if you jump down to verse 13, it says, Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. And every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So every year, the son, firstborn son was a, was God's, and they would redeem the firstborn son, so the son would continue to live by sacrificing the lamb. So Abraham's going up to the mountain, 
God is calling his, you know, his son into account. He's assuming God, as was traditionally done, was going to provide a lamb so his son could be redeemed. But it wasn't until the very end that that was provided. And so we see that God provided and the son was spared. Just keep that in the back of your mind. We see that we move from Old Testament now into the New Testament. You had the whole sacrificial system, Leviticus, all the sacrificials, you know, sacrificing the bulls and the lambs and, and all of this. And now we come to Jesus, and Jesus comes on the scene, and John identifies him. And what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God. So this, this thread is just continues from Adam and Eve to Cain and Abel to Abraham and Isaac to, Isaac to all of the sacrifices and the whole system that went on and now Christ comes and he stands in the upper room and he lifts the bread and he says, this bread is my body. And he lifts the cup and he says, this cup is my blood. And what's very interesting is there's no reference to the lamb. Now, I believe the lamb was on the table. There are some commentators that believe there, was, there wasn't even a lamb there. But I think the lamb was there, but you don't... It's almost like the lamb that was on the table didn't matter. And why was it that the lamb on the table didn't matter? Because the lamb of God was standing in front of them. And who was this Lamb of God? The firstborn. The firstborn of the Father. And what would be different about this night is there would be no sacrifice offered for the firstborn. Unlike with Abraham and Isaac on this night, there was no other substitute. There was no other sufficient substitute. It would be the firstborn who would die for me and for you, for the sins of the entire world. We see in the very last book of the Bible, as we look at Revelation, we see that there's a scene in heaven. There's a scroll, and and nobody can open this scroll. Revelation chapter 5. And no one is there. John says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. And one of the elders said, Wait, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. By your blood you ransomed people for God. So what what do we learn in this? Let me just give you something to to take out today. 
I mean, there's a lot of things that, that you see in this story. We certainly see the patience and mercy of God. I mean, it was ten plagues. You know, not a, there wasn't a human life that was taken in those plagues until the last one. We see God's mercy and his patience. We see the judgment of God very clearly. The judgment upon the land. And it was, it was upon everyone. When judgment comes, no one escapes judgment. You don't escape judgment because God, I don't escape judgment because God likes me better than somebody else. I am as much under the judgment of God as anybody else on the face of the earth. That is no respecters of persons. And the destroyer, when the destroyer came, it was of no respecter of persons. We see the need to be passed over. That each one of us, like those Israelites, huddled in their houses when death was passing by. They had that need. This is the picture. If you're a Christian, you're a passed over person. And the last thing, and, and this is what I want to leave with you, I think we see here the sufficiency of the blood that was on those doorposts. The sufficiency of the blood. You know, in Hebrews chapter 13, <clears throat> it talks about an eternal covenant. Verse 20. It says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. The Father had an eternal covenant. It was established before the world was even created. And the covenant was that the Father was giving the Son a gift. And the gift that the Father was giving the Son was all of the redeemed creation. You know, Christ is going to come and reign in our midst. And the gift is the church. The gift is those that have been redeemed. And the sign of that covenant, the sign that that covenant <clears throat> was sealed was and ratified was the blood of Jesus Christ on that cross. Therefore, God is bringing all things under one head, even Christ. That's, that's the mystery, what it talks about in Ephesians. What's the mystery? God is bringing all things under Jesus. All that have been redeemed are given to Jesus, and he will reign with them forever and ever. And so we see this sacrificial system, but it's all just looking ahead to to this ultimate work of the reality which is in Jesus himself. And so, that's why in, in, in Hebrews 10, we read these words. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Jesus is saying, it's not about those other sacrifices. They do not, they cannot, they are not sufficient. The Lord said, I have come. I'm giving my body, my sacrifice, and that blood that flows from the blood of Christ 
is sufficient for every sin. You know, it didn't matter what kind of a day you had that night. The Passover destroyer came through. I'm sure some people had good days. I'm sure some people had bad days. It wasn't about that. It was about the blood on the door. And nothing more and nothing less. D.A. Carson is, is one, of my, uh, <clears throat> one of my favorite theologians. <clears throat> and uh, I want you to just listen. He, he comments on this scene. And uh, I think you'll appreciate what he has to say. Picture two Jews by the name of Smith and Brown. Remarkably Jewish names. The day before the first Passover, having a little discussion in the land of Goshen. And Smith says to Brown, boy, are you a little nervous about what's going to happen tonight? Brown says, well, God told us what to do through his servant Moses. You don't have to be nervous. Haven't you slaughtered the, the lamb and daubed the two doorposts with blood, put blood on the lintel? Haven't you, you done that? You're all ready and packed to go? You're going to eat the, the whole Passover meal with your family? Well, of course I've done that. I'm not stupid. But it's still pretty scary. When you think of all the things that have happened around here recently, you know, flies and river turning to blood, and it's pretty awful. And, and, and now there's a threat of the firstborn being killed, you know? It's all right for you. You got three sons. I've only got one. And I love my Charlie, and, 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 and the angel of death is passing through tonight. You, you, you know? I, I know what, what God says, and I've put the blood there, but, but it's pretty scary. I'll be glad when this night is over. And the other one responds, bring it on. I trust the promises of God. That night, the angel of death swept through the land. Which one lost his son? And the answer, of course, is neither. Because death doesn't pass over them on the ground of the intensity or the clarity of the faith exercised but on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. That's what silences the accuser. The blood silences the accuser of the brothers as he accuses us before God. He silences our consciences when he accuses us directly. How many times do we writhe in agony asking if God can ever love us enough, if God can ever care for us enough after we've done such stupid, sinful, rebellious things, after being Christians for 40 years? What are you going to say? Well, you know, God, I, I tried hard, you know? I did, I did my best. It was, a, it was a bad moment. No, 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 no. I have no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. We overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. There is the ground of all human assurance before God. There is the ground of our faith, not guaranteeing intensity of faith, so fickle are we. 
It's not the intensity of our faith, but the object of our faith that saves. They overcome him on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for <clears throat> your blood. We thank you for the ultimate sacrifice, which was not the ones that took place in the temple grounds, but, <clears throat> Father, the one that took place on Calvary. The blood of bulls and lambs cannot sufficiently deal with our sin, but, Father, your own blood shed for us, as we have heard today, is sufficient. Lord, we know that you desire us to live holy lives. You, you care about how we live our lives, but, but in the end, it's, it's not about our lives. It's about your life that you lived. It's about your blood that you shed. It's all about you, and it's not about us. So might we remember that as we seek to live lives that please you, as we go about the things you've given us to do, might we rest, might we rest in, in the truth. And, and Lord, might this scene, this vivid scene from this Passover night, judgment coming, and it's simply based on whether there's blood or not, your blood, the blood of the lamb on that door. Father, we thank you for uh, this truth. I pray for anyone here today who is not covered by your blood, and, and by that, Lord, I mean has, has never just trusted in the work of Christ on their behalf. Lord, without that blood in our lives, without that faith, not based on the intensity of our faith, Lord, you said the faith of a, if we have the faith of a mustard seed, smallest thing you could Give us, if we have just even a little faith in you, you are sufficient to save. So I pray for anyone here who has yet to trust in you, that they might <clears throat> place their faith in you today. Father, thank you for this, this truth, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, at the conclusion of our service,